So y'all, we, uh, we're in Acts chapter 13, and we started, <coughs> excuse me, we started uh, two weeks ago when the Holy Spirit, if you remember in Acts 13, when the, when the Holy Spirit called Paul and Barnabas, and then the church in Antioch in Syria, which is about two or three hundred miles due north of Jerusalem, the church in Antioch in Syria, they commissioned, the church commissioned Paul and Barnabas as the first real Christian missionaries. The church commissioned them, but the Holy Spirit called them. The church didn't call them. The Holy Spirit called them. The Holy Spirit put them in the mission field, and the church in Antioch and Syria commissioned them, supported them, and sent them out. And then last week, if you were here last week or if you've watched the message online last week, Richard did an excellent job in, uh, in, in teaching about their first stop. They leave Antioch in Syria, and they go to Cyprus, which is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And that was the first stop because Acts 13 is the, is the, is the sending off of, the, of Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And they took, when they left, they took John Mark with them. And we saw in verse 13 that, that Paul and his band of brothers, after being on, in Cyprus or on Cyprus, they set sail for Perga, a place called Perga. And you don't hear much about Perga on this trip, but when they left Cyprus, John Mark left them and went back to, uh, to Jerusalem. And John Mark was the guy that wrote the gospel according to Mark. So when they went to Cyprus, it was Paul and Barnabas and a few other guys and John Mark. John Mark, when they leave Cyprus, goes back to Jerusalem. And we're going to pick up this story in Acts 13 in, uh, in verse 14. So John Mark left and goes back to Jerusalem. And then verse 14 says, But they, they, Paul and Barnabas and a couple other guys, they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, this is a different Antioch. This is um, about two or 300 miles due north of Cyprus, up into Turkey. And so this is a, it's still called Antioch, but it's Antioch in Pisidia versus Antioch in Syria. So it says, But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, which would be Saturday morning, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. Paul and Barnabas. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to him saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, Paul said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, he said, Listen. He said, Listen. So Paul and Barnabas, they get to this city, Antioch and Pisidia. They go straight to the synagogue. Richard told us last week that that was kind of the the, the mode of operation for the entire, all the mission journeys. They would go to a city, they would go into a synagogue. Missionaries go where people are. The people were in the synagogue, so the missionaries go there. Evangelism has got to always go where people are. Our homeless ministry on Monday nights, they don't come to us. They don't come to our building on 6th Avenue. We load up at 6th Avenue and we go out to where they are. Missionaries and evangelists go. We don't wait for people to come. We go. And so that's what Paul and Barnabas did and continue to do throughout the book of Acts. And Paul here, he takes the lead and, and he addressed Jews in the synagogue, but he also addressed Gentiles who feared the Lord. The text says 
These are Gentiles who feared the Lord. So the people in front of them were Jews who, who were faithful to the Old Testament scriptures, faithful to the Old Testament uh, word of God, and then Gentiles who had really were fed up, they had gotten sick and tired of the immoral and the wicked society and the religion of the day, and they, these Gentiles had seen some amount of truth in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. So this is a typical Saturday morning synagogue service. There was a reading from the Pentateuch, a reading from the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. A reading from the, from the Torah. And then there was a reading from the prophets. And y'all, synagogue services, here we are 2,000 years later, a synagogue service, if you were to walk in one, it's exactly the same way. There's a portion read from the Torah, and there's a portion read from one of the prophets. Every single Sabbath is the same in a synagogue. And then, so they do that, and then the folks in charge there in Antioch and Pisidia, they ask Paul and Barnabas if they want to speak. And Paul, of course, jumps up at the opportunity, and what we're going to look at today is actually the only full message from Paul that is recorded in Scripture. And there are several things that I want you to recognize. Today, the buzzword today is recognize. And if you don't have a worship God, you've got to have one today. So if you don't have one, if you'd raise your hand and somebody, um, somebody get everybody a worship God. So we're going to dive into a ton of Scripture. Today's going to be way more Bible and way less Ed. Way more of God's Word and way less of what I think about God's Word. And so, as I was prepping for this week, really Sunday night, um, Sunday, after, really after church Sunday, and Sunday night and Monday, I noticed something super interesting. You know, in Acts 13, Paul's message that Luke records in Acts 13, it's broken into two sections. Now, your Bible is not really going to formally break it into two sections, but there's two sections. First, Paul gives us some history, some history of Israel. And then it's, and then it's just all about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that, that's not really what's interesting to me, but, but what was is that the first part of Paul's message in Acts 13, it sounds a lot like Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7. If you remember, Stephen was the first martyr of the church. Stephen, a year or two after Christ uh, ascends to the Father, Stephen is kind of on trial, and, and, um, and we're going to dig into that in a minute, but Stephen is kind of on trial, and he preaches this message, and he ends up being martyred, the first martyr of the church. But this beginning of Paul's message sounds a lot like Stephen, like a paraphrase almost of Stephen's message in Acts 7. And then the second part of Paul's message that we're going to go through um, sounds a whole lot like the Apostle Peter's message at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the church was born. A lot sounds a lot like it. So I believe, y'all, that we would be wise before we jump in to the beginning of Paul's message this morning to look at Stephen's words in Acts chapter 7. And in every single thing that we will look at today, I want y'all to recognize God and his activity. Recognize God and his activity. You will see his sovereignty. You will see that he is the God of our future. And he's the God of our past. And he's the God of our present. 
You'll see his sovereignty, you'll see his control, and you'll see his incredible power. And this power, his incredible power, really seems to always, then and now, seems to be laser-focused on leading someone who does not have a relationship with him into a saving relationship with him. And so I really want you to focus on his word this morning. Focus on his word. Recognize that his activity, recognize and acknowledge the fact that every single thing is at his disposal. I want you to, as we walk through Scripture, and you'll notice your worship guide has two extra pages because there's a lot of Scripture in it. And as you see things that he does as we read through, you see things that he does in his movements and he's, and he's doing stuff and he's declaring stuff, circle it in, in your worship guide. Highlight it. Underline it. Because I want you to go home with something you can stick on your refrigerator and say, holy mackerel, man, look at this God of activity, this God that does stuff in history. So I want you all to do that. And so I want you to recognize that he really does have everything at his disposal and that, he, that, that his will will absolutely, unconditionally come to fruition. It is going to happen. Whatever he wills is going to happen. And me and you, we can get in the way of it. And we can fight it. We get to choose. you got a chooser. So, so you get to choose, and you can get in his way, and you can fight it. Or we can surrender to him and join in. But either way, you are not that big of a deal that you are going to hinder God's will. So you can get in the way of it, fight it, which a lot of us do. A lot of us spend a whole bunch of our lives doing that. But it's going to happen. Y'all, it is so similar. George Wallace was governor in Alabama in 1963. In June, he defied a federal court by standing in front of the doors of the University of Alabama to keep two black students from coming into that university. He said, he said to them, he said, you will enter over my dead body. And he was maintaining this system of segregation at the University of Alabama. Now, the only problem with that was the United States government had sent down federal marshals to escort these two students in. And they said, Governor Wallace, you got choices you got two choices. You can remove yourselves from these front doors, or we can remove you from the front doors. But one thing is going to be the case. You are not going to blot the laws of the United States of America. And that law says that you must not maintain segregation at this university. Things are going to change today. They said one thing is the case. You ain't getting in the way of it. So they said, now you decide whether you're going to get out of the way or whether we're going to get you out of the way. But one thing is for sure, you need to know that you will be out of the way when we leave here. Y'all, when God jumps into the pit with you, when God jumps into the lion's den and Satan has taken a stand against you and he's gotten your boss to take a stand against you and he's gotten your friends to take a stand against you and he's gotten your family to take a stand against you, and everybody is standing up against you, God wants you to know today that ain't the final deal. That ain't the final decision. There is a heavenly court. And when that court sends in the marshal, that court will overrule whatever system is pushing you down. Whatever system is holding you down, the marshal will free you from that. Y'all, so I want us to look in Acts chapter 7 at Stephen's words and again, please bear with me and, and notice and recognize God's activity. 
the things that he says and does. And I want you to forget, in Acts 7, when Stephen is, is, is answering this charge, Paul is there. Paul is not a Christian. Paul gets saved in Acts chapter 9. Paul is a hater. Paul is standing there putting his stamp of approval on everything that's taking place. So, but I want you to hear Stephen's words, and I really want you to, I want you to hear what Paul heard. I want you to imagine Paul kind of lurking real creepy-like over here holding coats, the cloaks, that's what the text tells us, of the guys of the Pharisees. So Stephen is, is answering a charge from the, the Jewish religious leaders of the day. And so I want you to hear the way Paul heard it, and then we're going to jump in and hear what Paul's words were 12, 13 years later. Look for the many places where God says and he does stuff, and I want you to recognize that God works throughout all history. He works throughout all history. So this is Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 2. Again, these are the words of God's word being spoken through, through his son, through his child, Stephen. Let me pray before we do this. Lord, we love you this morning. Lord, as we walk through your child Stephen and Peter and Paul, and when, you, when we walk through your words as, as you spoke through them, Lord, let those words convict us. Let, us. let those words transform us. Lord, let us focus on, on your awesomeness, on your sovereignty. Lord, let us leave here understanding that you are exactly who you say you are, and you can do every single thing that you say you can do. So, Lord, we ask you to be in the middle of, of our gathering this morning. Lord, let us be laser-focused on you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, the Jewish religious leaders had accused Stephen of blasphemy. And so they say, the high priest said in verse 1, are these things so? And Stephen said this. Again, hear this the way Paul heard it. Stephen says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. The Lord says, go, and I will show you where the land is. Then he, he, Abraham, went out from the land of the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, after Abraham's father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So Stephen says, after that, we're standing in the land where he moved Abraham. It's telling the, the Jewish religious leaders. He says, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. What? Abraham didn't have no offspring. Text tells us right then, though he had no child, but God had promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring. And then in verse 6, and God spoke to this effect, that his offspring, Abraham's offspring, would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. He's telling them the history of Israel. He's telling them what happened when they're going into Egypt to be slaves. Verse 7 said, the Lord says, but, 
But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And then he gave, the Lord gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, his, their brother, sold their brother into Egypt. But God was with him. The Bible tells God was with Joseph. Joseph, and in verse 10 says, God rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler. The king of Egypt made Joseph ruler over Egypt and ruler over all of his household. Stephen goes on, now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kin people, and there were 75 of them in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. And Stephen goes on. He says, but as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. A couple of million people now, God has, they, they are enslaved, and now he has grown those people to a couple of million people in slavery in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. At the perfect time, at God's appointed time, Moses was born, and the Bible says, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And then Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart. Reckon how something came into his heart. And you know, the heart was the seed, the seat of thought in the Hebrew mind. So it's really the heart and mind working together. God put it in his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And he saw one of them being wronged, and he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by smoting in the, the Egyptian. It really says striking down. I just threw a little Ed word in there. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brothers, why are you wronging each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, thrust Moses aside, and said, Who made you the boss? Do you want to kill me just as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at that, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years more had passed, how old is he now? About 80. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Now remember, remember this is, this is Stephen telling all these Jews this stuff that they already knew, but he's putting it all in perspective for them. He says, when Moses saw it, he was amazed, saw the burning bush. He was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. 
I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled. Would you not tremble if that happened to you? Trembled. He didn't even look. And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And the Lord said to him, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, and I will send you to Egypt. And Moses is like, Who, me? This Moses, Stephen goes on, he says, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you the boss? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, this man Moses, led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years, 40 more years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one, this is the Moses who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. This is the Moses who received living oracles to give to us. And our fathers, remember this is Stephen telling all these Jews, our fathers refused to obey him. But they thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt and they said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. Make for us idols. Craft us up some idol that we can take with us and worship. As for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we don't even know what has become of him because he's up on the mountain hanging out with the Lord. And they made a calf, a golden calf in those days. And they offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their own hands. Not rejoicing in the work of the Lord who just got them out of, out of 400 years of slavery. They're rejoicing in the works of their hands. They made some lame golden calf idol thing. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. And then Stephen uh, quotes Amos. He says, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Stephen goes on and says, Our fathers had the tent of witness, that's the tabernacle, and they had the tabernacle in the, in the wilderness, just as at the way that the Lord who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, had blueprints on how to make the tabernacle, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out. When they went into Canaan, they dispossessed seven nations. God threw seven nations out of Canaan. So it was, Stephen goes on, until the days of David. David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But, it, but the Lord said, no, David, you're not building it. It was Solomon who would build a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. And then he quotes Psalm 11. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my pla the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And y'all, then Stephen absolutely lays it on them. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, just like your daddies did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, the Christ, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Remember now, this hadn't been that long since Jesus was hanging on the cross. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And then they killed Stephen, stoned him to death with rocks. Y'all, that's the word of the Lord this morning. Paul was there, and Paul approved of every single thing that happened. Now I want you to fast forward 10, 12, 13 years, and Luke records Paul's message in Antioch of Pisidia. Remember now, God works through all history, all history. Look at Acts 13. Keep circling and highlighting the stuff that God's doing. Starting in verse 17 of Acts 13. The God of this people Israel, and I want you to think about what Stephen had said, and this is now Paul 12, 13 years later. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And by that he means made them grow into a couple of million. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he, the Lord, put up with them in the wilderness, their shenanigans, And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And remember, this is Paul preaching to Jews and Gentiles in this synagogue. And after that, he gave them, after he gets them out of the land of Egypt, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and he gave them a king. He gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years and when he had removed him when the Lord removed Saul he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will y'all that's the word of the Lord spoken through Paul he's working through all of history he's working with man through history. He's working with man through the nation of Israel. Notice that God chose Israel. God delivered Israel. He put up and suffered with all of their junk in the desert, all of their junk in the wilderness. He led them in to conquer Canaan. He gave them judges. He gave them a king. He even allowed them to choose the king, Saul. And when that king failed, God raised up a special king of his own choosing named David. Clearly, clearly, God has all of history at his disposal, and he works through every bit of it. Now, before we look at the rest of Paul's message, I want us to look back at Peter's message at Pentecost. And we don't believe that Paul was present at Pentecost. Paul was present at Stephen's message We don't believe that Paul was present at Pentecost, but trust me, Paul knew every word, every word that Peter spoke in Acts 2. Why? Because he was a hater, and he wanted to know his enemy. Ultimately, he wanted to kill Peter. This message that birthed the church also birthed persecution. Y'all get that, right? The church is birthed, and Paul, there is no doubt Somebody recorded it on their phone or something and told Paul, showed Paul, this is what this guy Peter said, we got to kill him and all of his people. So Paul knew what Peter was saying at Pentecost. And then we're going to compare it to what Paul said at the end of his message in Acts 13. And I want you to recognize in this kind of part 
that God consummates history. God fulfills history. I want you to look at his activity. Again, this is Peter's message, part of Peter's message at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, six or seven weeks after, after uh, the resurrection. Six or seven weeks after that first Easter, Jesus ascends to the Father. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls. Thousands of people out there listening to Peter's message. They're from all over the place. They hear Peter's words, which are Hebrew, coming out of his mouth. They hear his words in their language coming in their ears. So the Holy Spirit is moving. Peter in verse 16 says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, starting in verse 17, Peter's message, Pentecost. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This did not sneak up on God. Peter says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You did it through the hands of the Romans. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and he quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also, also will dwell in hope. This is David now writing this about a thousand years earlier, talking about the Messiah. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter goes on, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he, is, he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, talking about David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants that God would set one of David's descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. The resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, Peter says, we all saw it. It wasn't but six weeks ago. We were all witnesses of it. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Peter says he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, 
But he himself says, and he quotes Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he lays it down. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Y'all, that is the word of the Lord spoken through Peter 2,000 years ago. Again, those are Peter's words that launched the church. Now, Paul's words, almost 15 years later, compare them, circle them, highlight them. Think about what Paul says after knowing what Peter says. God consummates history. Starting in verse 23 of Acts 13. Paul goes on, he says, Of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. You know we serve a promise-making, promise-keeping God. John, before his coming, John the Baptist had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I ain't even worthy to untie. And Paul says, brothers, remember he's in the synagogue in Antioch in Pisidia. Jews and Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they didn't recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets. And the utterances of the prophets, I told you, are read every single Saturday, every single week of the year. And Paul says, because they did not understand him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, our fathers fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed, and when they, carried him, <clears throat> when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, his disciples, his apostles, his guys. Many of those, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, in Psalm 2, a thousand years before he was born, says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. In Isaiah chapter 55, Paul quotes, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, he quotes Psalm 16, you will not again, a thousand years before these events, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and David saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, 
everyone, everyone, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And then he quotes Habakkuk about 600 years before. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Y'all, he's doing a work in Habakkuk's days. He's doing a work in Abraham's days. He was doing a work in, in Moses' days. He's doing a work in David's days. He's doing a work in Isaiah's days, in Jeremiah's days. 2022, he's doing a work in our day, in our city. Recognize his work, y'all. He is constantly, sometimes in the foreground, sometimes in the background, but he's moving the chess pieces around. God consummates history. He's provided the Messiah for the world, given the Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul's message to the Jews, it was powerful. The Savior was proclaimed by a forerunner, John the Baptist. The Savior is the word of salvation being proclaimed. Jesus himself is the salvation. He's the one that's rejected. He's the one that's crucified. He's the one that's raised. He's the one that's begotten. He's the Holy One that did not see corruption. Through Him is the forgiveness of sins. True freedom, true liberty is through Him. Our God consummates history. Y'all have asked you several times this morning to recognize His activity, His actions and His movements. And this is what God did to me Sunday night and Monday. As I was reading it, I grabbed this little journal and I just started writing down, and you can't, read my chicken scratch. I can't read my chicken scratch. But I'm writing down all the little God movements that I was noticing from Peter, from Paul, and from Stephen. 52 that I recognize. And I'm, there's no doubt that I missed some. I'm sure I missed some. But 52, 52 God movements. Here's just a few of them. God chose our fathers. God appeared to Abraham. He gave him the covenant of circumcision. He was with Joseph. God rescued Joseph. He appeared to Moses. He grew the Hebrews into a couple of million people in the middle of being in slavery. He led them out of Egypt. He led them out of Egypt. He put up with them. He destroyed seven nations to get the Hebrews into the land of promise into Israel. He gave them the land. He gave them judges. He gave them a king. He brought a savior to the world. He raised up Jesus from the dead. He fulfilled promises. He raised up Jesus from the dead. He kept him from corruption. He poured out his spirit. He caused prophecy. He caused visions. He caused dreams and signs and wonders. He raised Jesus up from the dead. He exalted Jesus. And he made Jesus both Lord and Christ. It begs this question, y'all, why? Why is he the God of history? Why is he the God of our future? Why is he the God of the past? Why all the activity? Why? Why? Like, why bother? Why bother? Why all the moving around of the chess pieces all the time? And I believe 
that the answer is in verses 38 and 39 of Acts 13. I hope we got it on, up on the screen again. Yeah. It says, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Jesus, only Jesus, is forgiveness of sins proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law. Paul is no fluffmeister. Paul, Paul, there's no vagueness in Paul. He is not ashamed of the gospel. Why you reckon Paul's not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God, of God for salvation for every single human that has ever lived or ever will live. Forgiveness comes only through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it produces a freedom and justification that cannot nor ever could have been accomplished through the law. You can't ever act good enough. You can't ever do enough good. It doesn't come that way. The law led us to the need. The law led us to understand our brokenness and our need for him who can forgive and for, for him who can bring true freedom and liberty. When you believe and you place saving trust in him, you are freed. And you are freed from what the law could never, ever, ever accomplish. The law can't free you from the chains of anger. Jesus Christ can, though. The law can't free you from the chains of hate, but Jesus Christ can. The law can't free you from the chains of lust, but Christ can. The law can't free you from the chains of racism, but Jesus Christ can. The law can't break the shackles of addiction, but the Lord can. Jesus can. The law can't free you from the chains of depression or anxiety, but Jesus Christ can. The law cannot, think about this, the law cannot free you from anything, but Jesus Christ can free you from everything. The law frees you from nothing. It leads you to the one who can free you from everything through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And it is by him and only him that everyone, which doesn't mean some people, it means everyone who believes is freed from everything from which the law could do nothing. The law is powerless. And you can be freed from everything. But you know, life, there is no promise in this book of a bed of roses. There is no promise that life is going to be trial-free, trouble-free, pain-free, suffering-free. It's really quite the opposite. Who knows why Stephen launches his ministry and a half an hour later is stoned to death? I don't know. I'm not the God of the future. But I know the one who is. But there is no promise of no trials. We were in Albany yesterday. <clears throat> if you'll flip to that. <sighs> we are in Albany yesterday. Some friends of ours, Paul... <clears throat> Paul and Kelsey Anderson. I don't know if I can do this. Sweet young couple, little boy named Elijah. Two weeks ago today, guy had a fever, goes to the hospital. 
Did he go Saturday first, Sunday, and then he came back. Kind of was okay, comes back, fever, plays a little bit, fever gets really bad, he goes back to the hospital on Monday, two weeks ago. That'll be two weeks ago tomorrow. Six days later, he's dead, physically dead, 19-month-old. Sweet, full of joy, crazy infection that they just could not, they they flew him to uh, Scottish Rite that next day. And they just couldn't do anything about it. People praying all over the world. I mean all over the world. I mean a guy praying at Mount Carmel in Israel for little Elijah. It's a terrible picture because I took it yesterday. But what that says, and that's from his mom and dad now. It says, I trust the next chapter Because I know the author. Who could do that? You cannot be the same on the good side of the cross as you are on the bad side of the cross. You can't be the same saved as you are lost. He transforms our minds. He transforms our hearts. They sang raise a hallelujah. At the funeral, Paul and Kelsey sang a song, Little Casket. Y'all, it's this big. They know the author, and they can trust the next chapter of their life because they know the author. Y'all, if you don't know the author today, I'm begging you, don't let your head hit the pillow tonight without considering the offer. Consider the offer from the author of life. It's not a complicated formula. I got to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. Y'all, that was the purpose of the law, for me to acknowledge my sinfulness. I got to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And I got to confess somehow or the other That Jesus' death on that cross, Yahshua of Nazareth, that's what they heard when Paul talked about Jesus. Yahshua. Yahshua is the author. Y'all, and I got to acknowledge that, that that death on that cross took care of my sin. It wasn't his to pay. It wasn't his to pay. It was mine to pay. And I can still choose to pay it with an eternity in hell. Stupid choice. You can make that choice. You got to choose her, y'all. I choose to believe that he paid for my debt, that he paid for my sin. Praise the Lord, I made that choice 22 years ago. And he walked out of the grave alive. The thrust of all the messages in the book of Acts, Peter, Paul, Stephen, Barnabas, every one of them, is that a dead guy went in the grave and a live guy walked out. Theology, doctrine, blah, blah. The dead guy came out of the grave alive. That's the thrust of the message. And because of that, I get to live forever with him. Every one of us are living somewhere forever. You you are eternal. You're living somewhere. Choose life. Choose life in the arms of the author of the one who breathed it into you. Y'all pray with me. Lord.
we love you today. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving your word down to us so many years later. Lord, I pray for anybody that is here in this today, right now, here, tomorrow, tonight, next week, listening, watching. Lord, that if they don't know you, that they would come to know you. That they would repent and turn away from their sin and they would turn towards you. They would acknowledge that you paid the debt that was theirs to pay. That you walked out of a grave alive to make eternal life available. Lord, I beg that they would cry out to you for salvation. And Lord, for those of us that are here today that know you, and maybe we've known you for five minutes, or maybe we've known you for 50 years, Lord, that the words today would cut a little bit into us to go out into the streets, into our work, into our schools, and speak the truth claims that you make in your scripture. Lord, how can we know that people are dying lost and not do anything about it. I would argue, Lord, we can't. And so, Lord, give us the strength to, like Paul, not be ashamed of the gospel. Let us understand that it is the power, your power for salvation, for everyone who believes. So, Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for the salvation that you offer us. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all, we've got people in our prayer team back here. Would love to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you outside. Um, Just think about it. Stick that worship guide up up on your refrigerator. Hopefully you circled and underlined and highlighted. And when you start having a pity party, worrying about where God is, go look at that worship guide and all your scribbling all over it, and you'll see him.